Phil Fariska. Hey, everybody. And Pete DeMeyer. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. And today we're going to be talking about something that people do on their website that makes us angry. And not just one of those things, but 10 things. We're going to be talking about 10 mistakes that we often see on hotel websites. This is going to be the podcast of rage. We might rant a little bit. And I ranted last week a little bit, but this this week I think we're going to have more ranting. Well, I think people liked your rant last week and were ready for more of it. I heard good feedback. So, and you know, if you're passionate about something, you should, you should give your opinion as we often do on this podcast. So before we get into the topic of the, the 10 mistakes that hotel websites make, let's check in with the news. All right. Well, so I got two news items to go over today and both of them are pretty cool. The first one is Google travel business twice the size of Expedia. This is an article that was on Skift and was published on November 1st. It's a really interesting article, and I'd say check out the show notes for a link to the article. But basically what the article goes over is the true size and breadth of Google's travel reach. And the fact that it's actually twice the size of what Expedia can do at any given time. Which raises the question, is Google going to become the next OTA and really aggressively jump into that travel space? Yeah, and the author makes the argument that they're not, right? Because they're already making way more money and doing a lot more things than these OTAs are doing. So why would it make sense for them to do it? My argument for that is, well, they disintermediate. So yes, they're making a lot of money now, but they can make a lot of money plus a lot more money if they get rid of the middleman. And we've talked about disintermediation before of the OTAs and how TripAdvisor is trying to do that, how Google is trying to do that. Uh, Whether they go away completely, I don't know, but I, I think ultimately, if Google doesn't see the need for the OTA, then why would they keep that unnecessary middleman? Yeah, well, my, my thing is it goes against, I mean, Google's a search engine. You know, their kind of mission in life is to go to Google for information and to be connected to people who actually provide a service. Do they want to get into the weeds in the travel industry worrying about rate parity and this and that and everything else? Or would they rather just skim as much money off the, as they can from the OTAs, from the independent hotelers, from the flags, in every ancillary service around the travel business? That's but, more what I was thinking because they're, I mean, they're in it to make money. That's that's their idea. And they're making money from multiple sources. One of the biggest ways is through PPC. And you have competition between all of the OTAs, independent properties. And in some of these bigger cities, the cost per click is really high. So, yeah. I mean, they're making boatloads right now of PPC alone. Yeah, but think about think about who's paying that ultimately, right? So even if it's Expedia making that bid, ultimately the hotel is paying that that click because they're paying the commission to Expedia, who reinvests that in paper click, right? So ultimately, the person at the end of the funnel is the one that's always going to be paying the bill, some way or another, whether directly or indirectly. So if if a hotel is spending, you know, a thousand dollars a month on their own paper click. And then they're spending five grand a month on OTA commissions, right? That five grand that goes to Expedia or Priceline, whoever it is, a percentage of that, maybe 10% of that, then goes to Google, right? So now they're getting $1,000 direct from the hotel. They're getting $500 from the OTAs through pay-per-click. And the OTAs are keeping a lot more money, right? So 
why wouldn't Google say, well, maybe I can keep 4,000 4, of this and the hotel wins and I win and the only loser there is the, the OTA. And I think that's, that's kind of where they were going with their HPA program was to enable that. But, you know, with... Well, it hasn't taken off yet. Right? No, but if hasn't. you look at flights, I think it's different. You know, if you look at where Google was with, with flights two, three years ago, it was dominant, dominated by the OTAs. But now, I mean, I can't remember the last time I booked a flight not using Google Flights. You know, I always go Google Flights first, click through ultimately to the, to the actual airline and, and book. And I really feel like ultimately that's where we're going to go with hotels as well. So I, I'd be nervous if I was Expedia, but you know, Expedia's making a lot of changes to add value, and so so TripAdvisor, so Hotels.com, all these guys. Yeah, well. I mean, it's it's going to be something to watch. If if I was Google and travel is a part of my business, I'm guessing that they have more weather searches on Google.com than anywhere else. I mean, do they get into the weather game? Do they get into all the other areas that people are searching for? I mean, you know, from Google's perspective. They're in all markets. I mean, can they really, you know, fracture their focus and say, well, let's focus on this, let's focus on that. You know, I mean, every time someone does a search for, say, hotels in California, you're clicking on multiple ads. So every single one of those click, one stay, is generating multiple clicks and money into Google's coffers. So I think it's something to watch out for because, you know, they could get more aggressive with it, but they're going to have to really be careful how they do it without alienating them. Yeah, and they can't do flip a switch and, and just get rid of the OTAs, right? Because it is their lifeblood right now. But I think over time, they're going to look to reduce the reliance and you know, have more of a direct relationship, which is why HPA exists. Mm -hmm. And now they're rolling out a percentage-based version of HPA instead of a click-based. So you know, they're definitely looking at becoming an OTA. How, how effective that is, we'll, we'll have to see. All right, what's cool. next? So the next news item that we have today is on TNews. And the headline is TripAdvisor invests in social dining service Eat With. Eat With is a really cool concept. I don't know quite how comfortable I would be with it. But what Eat With is, is a Airbnb for people looking for dinner. So let's say you go to a destination or even your own hometown. You can go on Eat With. You can find someone willing to host dinner. You go to their house. They have an actual meal and an experience all laid out that you're actually buying, you enjoy the meal, the service is over. But you're actually going into people's houses and having them cook for you. Now, is the idea that you sit down with them and, and like it's almost like a dinner party, or, or do they just cater to you like a restaurant? Well, it's like Airbnb, so it could be a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it could be a one-on-one, -on -one, or it could be you are looking for a dinner experience with you and you know eight of your friends. You know, in that case, you know, you would only have, you know, a probably a smaller sample, I would guess. But still, you're going to someone's house. And sometimes you're even seeing professional chefs starting to use this platform to kind of augment what they're already, you know, doing. So if there's a popular restaurant in town, you may find that that chef on his days off could participate in that service. Mm -hmm. It's very early in the process. They've only had 11,000 dinners hosted so far. What I found really interesting is TripAdvisor is investing in the service. They're going to be giving them share of the screen when you're on TripAdvisor, you know, in a destination. And the people helping to fund Eat With are the same people who invested in Airbnb, Facebook, Dropbox, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Tumblr. So they have a pretty good track record of 
you know, creating successful products. So this yeah. is interesting. This is cool. I mean, I, I think it's 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 novel experience, but or, or a novel idea that can lead to great experiences, which is what people are craving today. So I think it really taps into that whole social economy and social sharing. Uh, this to me is going to be a big thing. I mean, I don't think it will take off in every small town, but I think in major cities, it's going to be really cool. I would honestly consider this if I'm going out of town on business, rather than having to go to you know the restaurant around the corner from the hotel. If there's a, a local experience I can I can have, I might try. And you can yeah. see ratings. You know, I mean, if it's well known, if it's popular, you definitely yeah. want to try that kind of thing out. Yeah, I think it's going to create you know some new revenue streams for. Like you said, chefs like who who don't yeah. have the money to go and invest in their own restaurant, could they kind of start their mm-hmm. own business and become a professional eat this, uh, just like people becoming professional Airbnbers? You know, right. I think it's cool. You know, the same thing is going to happen related to regulations. The, the the that's happening with Airbnb. The restaurant lobbyists are going to get involved. There's health and safety kind of concerns that you're going to have to deal with. So. Keep an eye on it in terms of the legislation, but I think right now it'd be fun to try. That's a really good point because it the pricing or the taxes on F and B mm-hmm. are through the roof. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you think taxes are a lot for the accommodation side, you know, on the F and B side. I mean, between liquor, meals, prepared meals, all that stuff, it's it's through the roof. So there's gonna be a competitive Tourism advantage. taxes, things like that. Yeah, it's really gonna be a competitive advantage initially for. The eat with her, I guess that's. The I people. just made that yeah, up. Yeah. I like it. Um, so are you gonna do it? Are you gonna start cooking for people? Uh, I wouldn't get very good ratings. Yeah. So. What about you, Melissa? I would cook for one person. I cannot cook for more than two. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We always make make way too much food, so this. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> that's your leftovers. Yeah. That's what I would do mostly after spaghetti night. Nice. If it doesn't fit in one pan, it, it's I, I can't do it. Okay. <laughs> Well, but what's in the one pan is delicious. Okay. We'll so come, so come to us for hotel marketing knowledge, but not necessarily meals. Culinary expertise. Yeah. Hey, I'm a pretty good cook, if I do say so myself. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. What are we here to talk about? We're here to talk about websites and what not to do. So we have 10 things, and this is definitely not an exhaustive list. So if, if you have others that you see and, and make you angry, like these ones make us angry, then you know, feel free to submit a, a, resp- a comment on our blog on thefueltravel.com slash podcast and click on episode 30 or hit us up on Twitter at Fuel Travel and tell us what, what makes you angry as well. But let's go through our 10. So Melissa, you want to kick us off? I will be happy to kick us off. The first one is funny to me that I'm doing this one because it is poor quality photography. Now remember, I am the analytics person. I am very, very left-brained. My right brain almost doesn't exist. So it's funny that I am very passionate about photography on websites because I have seen some really, really terrible photography. So I do want to talk about that for a minute. Let's face it, bad photography, bad for your hotel. People process images faster than they do text. Therefore, you really want those photos to be what people are happy to see and make a good first impression on a guest when they come to your website. I'm going to give you three examples of things that have just ticked me off beyond belief on hotel websites that I have truly seen in the wild. The first one is a view of the outside of a hotel. So imagine you're looking out the window of your hotel and it's a picture of a parking lot with a porta potty. 
I'm not making this up. This is what was on the website. Now, was it listed as an amenity? It's it, outside I don't restaurant. think it was listed as an amenity, uh-huh. um, but it, that that happened for real. I saw that for real, and I thought, what were these people thinking? Did nobody see that there was a porta potty, and why is it a parking lot? What entices me to want to book a hotel, book a room with this hotel? Nothing about that photo. That was number one. Number two are toilets. I have to assume if I'm staying in a traditional hotel in the United States, there is a toilet in my room. I do not need to see a picture of the toilet in my room. I assume it's a standard toilet. Please do not put (laughs) toilets in pictures. I would say the same about real estate pictures as well. I don't need to see a toilet. The third thing I would say is bathrooms in general, unless you are a high-end property and you really do have a spectacular, you know, you have a really nice tub and the granite everything. Again, I assume there's a bathroom that has a shower and a sink. I do not need to see a picture of it. Okay. I have things to say about that. I can tell. That is not at all how I expected that topic to go. See, when, I have things about bathroom habits. When we were creating the show notes, yeah. I was thinking the photography was more about the quality of the photography. There's that pi- too. Pixelation. Sure. In terms of uh, what what's in the photo. Like I think a few episodes ago, Pete, you'd mentioned uh, photography that's dated. Like oh, it, that drives me nuts. Like it has the, the guy in the short shorts with a perm from the 80s yeah. you know, on, a, on the running machine or something. Yeah, you, don't, you don't need those. Oh, yeah. wait, there's one more though. And okay. photoshopping She's not weird done, th- I'm not done. Photoshopping things that just weren't there in the first place. I mean, I have seen pictures of in-resort restaurants where plates have been photoshopped, people have been photoshopped, food has been photoshopped, and clearly just was wrong. Yeah. Bad. So we, we know that Melissa gets angry about photography, but we also know that consumers really like good photography. And you know this is the first impression that your hotel gives. So if your photography is not good, and we're doing a study right now, we're getting ready to release that, and, and one of the questions we asked was how long does it take you to form an opinion on a web hotel website? And, and it's, you know, we all think it's low, right? Three, four, five seconds, right? And we know that con- the people process f- images faster than they do text, right? So photography is really, really important. We actually found that 15 seconds is what the, the respondents gave to, to us for how long it takes them to form an opinion on a site. So we know they're not just looking at a glance and seeing whatever their first thing they see and bouncing. They're actually taking their time to digest it, right? So photography can really tell a story. It's their first link into your hotel. So making sure you put your best foot forward. If you're a beach property, show your property in the vicinity of the beach. Make sure it's a high quality image. Make sure it's a blue sky. So there is times to Photoshop, right, Melissa? Sure. Like blue skies, blue oceans, things like that. But also sell your property. Show the amenities. Show the beautiful rooms and Not the a clean, clean beds. <laughs> Don't show the parking lot and the porta potty. So, so I think the mistake we see is dated, poor quality photography, and that is a really bad first impression for someone visiting your website. We're in 2017 budget planning. We've talked about it in the last couple podcasts. You need to have an annual budget for photography. It's not, we shot photography in 2016, we're good for 2017. Every year you have to shoot that, otherwise you're going to end up, without realizing it, having the guy with short shorts on and a perm, you know, on the old-fashioned treadmill. Every year, focus on an area, get some great photography, and invest the budget into it. Yeah. 
I agree. And it's not just one or two killer hero shots. It's let's tell the story of the property through photography. Let's photo, photograph everything we can. Well, people know that one hero shot that you used on your TripAdvisor page, you used on the main promo panel that you're using everywhere in the world. Yeah, we get it. There, You've got a great shot. Good for you. Customers don't necessarily want a fantastic shot. They want a good shot, but they want a lot of them, of every part of the room, the amenities, the lobby. Get those that photography in because you know, if someone goes to TripAdvisor and they're browsing properties, that photography may be the only thing that sells your property. I mean, you mentioned it's the first impression. It may be the only impression because if you have a crappy photo and your competitor has a great one, you're never going to get them to the, your site to see your other benefits. Yeah, and, and we're talking about the, the content within the photo, right? The, the quality is also important. Remember that technology is changing, right? So if I took a photo five years ago and put it on my website, it was probably at 72 DPI, right? Which is the resolution, which was fine for the internet back then because that's the best that screens could, could actually show. But now we've got retina displays on iPhones and, and Macs. And they actually have a higher resolution than 72 mm-hmm. DPI. So if you've got a 72 DPI image and you're seeing it on a Mac or, or an iPhone or, or um, an iPad, it looks grainy now. It, it looks mm-hmm. pixelated. So you, you've got to make sure that the quality of your image is not just from um, you know size-wise, but also from a, a resolution-wise <coughs> is up to par with current technology. Mm-hmm. And with screens getting more and more... Uh, acute in their resolution you've got to consider that so that's part of when you're updating photography what you want to consider all right what's next i think we've done photography to death uh next kind of still has to do with images um but we're talking about load times uh because nothing can be more frustrating than when you get to a site and you have to wait forever for it to load um it's just annoying especially when you're using multiple sites to kind of check prices, check out hotels. You want something to load fast. You want your information quickly. And if your site's not loading fast, you might get tossed out of the mix. Yeah, and nine out of 10, when someone comes to us, Pete, and says, my site's loading really slowly, what is the issue? Giant images. Giant images every time, right? So the the great thing is in in today's age, the hotel itself can control a lot of its content, its own content. Mm -hmm. So it can upload photography, for example but they don't take the time to resize it or they don't have a CMS that resizes it for them. So they end up, you know, we're talking about making sure it's high enough quality, right? So maybe 90 DPI. But these people are uploading like 300 DPI images that are like 10,000 pixels wide. And, And that is like 50 megs of file size. And they've got 10 of these images on a single page. And it just brings mm-hmm. the website to a halt. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful image, but you're still going to get that picture. Just size it correctly. Exactly. Yeah, resize before you upload it. It's better than any automated pro- program for sure. And really, I mean, that, that, that type of thing is going to be detrimental to your rankings too. When you're talking about slow page loads, you're getting a lower click-through rate because people are you know, they're leaving before they even get there because it takes too long to load. Google looks at that. Google also uses page speed as a ranking factor now. So those type of things are really, really playing a, playing a big role in where your site's ranked. Yeah, and especially on mobile, right? So, I mean, speed's even more important on mobile when people are on the go and jumping around. So, yeah, keep your images the right quality so they're good enough, but not too good a quality because then the file size is too too high. And if you want to check your page speeds, you can use tools, um, Google Page Speed Insights, really good. Um, another one's GT Metrics, 
And another one is Pingdom, and it kind of lets you test your speed from different geolocations. Yeah, I like, I like Pingdom just because it's so simple to use. It's actually at tools.pingdom is the easiest way to get there. And nothing to sign up for. You just put in your website, hit go, and it will tell you how fast it loads from any given area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes it's not the actual website content itself that's causing the problem. Sometimes it's a technical issue. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you do have to involve your web developer to make sure that you know the, the server infrastructure is adequate to host the website that you have, things like that as well. But just, just make sure your website is fast. And Google gives you great guidelines on how fast it should be. And, and not only do these tools tell us how fast it is, Google in the Google Search Console also tells us how long it takes it to index the site. And that's really, really important because the slower it takes Google to index the site, the lower you're going to rank every time. Well, that brings up a good point where, you know, from an SEO perspective, you need to rely on the people who build your site and optimize your site to be looking at this. It's not enough for someone optimizing and handling your search optimization to you know, only look at the traditional type of you know, indicators on your site. Page speed is now you know, right there at the top. And is. that is important for them to focus on for search, not just from a consumer's ability to get to the site and load it fast. Yeah, and it's not just a one-time look at it and you're done, right? Okay, my site's fast today. I don't need to look at that again. It's something you should probably look at every month with your analytics because things can change. You can add things to the site. You can add functionality of photos that are going to slow it down, or you could get a hardware issue on your hosting environment that are causing performance issues. So it's something that you, you don't just look at once, keep out of sight, out of mind of that. You have to continue to monitor that because at any point, your site could drop in performance, and that's going to hurt you in the long run. Yeah, it could just be making you know your CSS better, JavaScript better, minimizing 301 redirects, things like that, and definitely improve page speed. So pay attention to all those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're probably sitting listening to this podcast at your office, and your site, your internet speed's probably really good. Think about the people who are you know at home with the lowest cost high-speed internet that's out there. The 14K modem. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they may be sitting there, yeah. listen to that sound, and then they try to load that 10,000 pixel image. It's a horrible... It was really, really, really yeah. bad. Yeah, it was, <laughs> I probably should have uh, not done that. <laughs> but I, I could edit that out. Yeah, but, I but you probably won't. No. But those people are also your customers, so think about that and... Optimize your site for the lower common denominator than just the fact that you know you're connecting at you know seventy megabit per second where someone else is at six. Good. All right. What's next? So the next one is a shame that we even have to talk about it, but it's your site not being mobile friendly. Wait, we've never talked about this before on this show. That's true. <laughs> this is new. You should have a mobile website that's available on smartphones. Really? Yes. This is, this is brand new information. <laughs> this is new information. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, a majority, specifically for hotels, a majority of your site traffic is coming from mobile devices. People that are not on a computer looking at your website. And it drives me nuts when you go there on your phone and all of a sudden there's this gigantic website that you're having to scroll around side to side. And zoom I'm, in. Yeah. I mean, it's almost 2017. This is not new stuff. You need to make sure not only is your site responsive or adaptive, however you want to format your site for mobile use, 
you need to make sure it works and make sure it works very well. Yeah, we've gone from mobile friendly, honestly, to mobile first. Like yeah. you said, it is the majority of traffic to a hotel website now is coming from a mobile device. So for you to still be in that antiquated methodology of building a site for desktop first and then making it work for mobile, it's backwards. You know, Even Google now is treating the internet as mobile first. They mm-hmm. recently announced that their mobile ranking is going to be their priority now. They're going to be making the majority of changes and tests on their mobile index, not their desktop index, because they understand that mobile is the majority of the internet now. Now, with hotels, you still have that quandary because the majority of bookings are still done on a desktop, and we talked about that. But they start on mobile, and exactly. not, not to offend Melissa, mobile. they start in the bathroom on a mobile device. <laughs> when you're trying Doesn't to mean decide, they want to see a picture of a bathroom <laughs> on true. their mobile device. But that's where it starts, is someone decides, I think about, I want to go travel somewhere, and they start very relaxed on their phone, on a couch, wherever they might be, and if you're not there, they're never going to even get to your desktop version of your site. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think you've got to think of people throughout the funnel. Yes, conversions happen more on the desktop, but you've got to catch mm-hmm. them. You've got to get them intri- intrigued with your property. And the only way to do that is on a mobile device and having a great mobile experience. We still have people come to us and say, what recommendations would you have for my website? We pull it up first on a mobile device and it is not in any way mobile friendly, or their site is mobile friendly and their booking engine is not mobile friendly, which is just as bad, right? So people, if you're listening to this podcast, I would assume that you're above average intelligence. Well, they're probably listening to this podcast on a mobile device. Probably so, right? (laughs) Yes. But but they're trying to educate themselves, so they must be above average intelligence. They're, They're trying to improve their hotel marketing. I'm hoping that everyone listening to this podcast by now has a mobile first approach to their marketing. So go tell everyone else because you guys mm-hmm. have got it straight. Everyone else has got it wrong. And there's still <laughs> way too many people out there that don't have a mobile friendly or mobile first website. Well, it was even weird for us when we, we decided to you know look at websites first, mobile first. That wasn't in our nature building websites like growing through this and now that it has become that that's what we do first all the time yeah i mean it took some threats from me to tell our guys hey we're gonna stop you being out we're gonna do what new york times did and they stopped Mm -hmm. their employees from even being able to load their own website on their desktop they they had they forced them to use their mobile devices to get them to change their mindset and i had to threaten that internally because it took us a while to to and still sometimes we Mm -hmm. forget right but for the most part, I feel like we, we got it. The switch is, switch is yeah. gone and, and we understand. All right, so next up, this is one that I, th- I think is, is easy to overlook and I don't think people really understand the true uh, importance of this. And that is the meta description and the title tag on your website. So by default, most web developers don't think about this. They're just going to put in, you know, the homepage is going to be myhotel.com or just the name of the hotel in the city or something like that. And then the meta description will be like the homepage of my hotel, whatever, right? It's very generic. And then you get to lower level pages and it'll just be amenities, pipe, the hotel name, right? It's just very, very vanilla, very generic. And sometimes people even just keep the same title tags and meta descriptions throughout the whole site or they, pr- they just automatically populate it. Now, this is really important for two reasons. One, it's a good signal to Google. They use both the meta description and the title tag 
in the algorithm to determine where you index or where you rank for certain keywords, right? But two, and probably more importantly, these are the two items that the consumer sees when they make a search. So when I search for hotels in Austin, Texas, and your hotel shows up, the only access I have to that website at that point is seeing the title tag in blue, which is the link, and then under, underneath is the meta description. So this, not only is it great for ranking, but it's a sales tool. It should really put your best foot forward. It should be the gateway to your site and it should tell people you need to click on me, not the other 10 listings above and below me because he is the value that I represent and that I give to you. So click on me right now. And it's not just your homepage, it's your interior pages as well. When you have a blog on your hotel website and you're talking about a specific event, well, you hope to show in the search results for that event. Again, you're selling that to people, so understand that that needs to be very descriptive in both your page title and meta description. Yeah, and think about it from the perspective of what, what is the nomenclature? What are the words that the actual consumer uses? Not what's the jargon that I think they should use, but what, what are people actually searching for? And, and incorporate that into, into those meta descriptions and titles but make sure it makes sense from a call to action perspective it should entice them to click and the best way to do that really i mean is do your keyword research if you don't know what you're doing have an seo firm do your keyword research but also create a keyword map know on each page what keywords you're going to target if you do that it makes writing your page titles and your meta descriptions infinitely easier you just go to your map and say okay we're targeting you know this keyword for this page make sure that's in your page titles and makes sense and doesn't seem computer yeah. generated to me the most important why this is so important is it's the it's the metric that anybody can look at and say oh look they're not even trying if you haven't done yeah. your page title and your description i know you haven't done all the other stuff that's important from a search perspective you know so I mean, even from Google's perspective, it's like, oh, these guys don't even care. You know, show the consumers, show Google, show everyone else that you actually care enough to focus on, you know, the basics. Yeah, when I'm auditing a site, you know, just a, a prospect comes to us and says, what do you think? You know, can you give us an evaluation? It's the first thing I look at. Yeah. Because you're right. It is, it's a good indication of whether or not they care. Um, but, it, you know, it also makes a big difference from Google's perspective. Mm -hmm. Those are two of the biggest factors in ranking. And if you're not, not taking the time, and it does not take a lot of time to implement unique call to actions in those meta descriptions and, and titles, then, I mean, what are you doing? It, it's, a, it's a waste of time. Yeah, think <laughs> about it. You're a hotel website. What do you have? Five, ten pages max in your main nav. Yeah, maybe. That's I mean, maybe hard. with blogs, it's more. But yeah, blogs definitely the, more. But you get get your homepage done, get your main nav done, and then go into your interior pages. And, and most time, like the blog pages, there's gonna be enough content that Google's gonna figure out what it's about. If it's a homepage with a big promo panel, you know, a lot of calls to action. <clears throat> that's maybe most of the text that's on that page. Mm -hmm. So making sure it's correct and. Compelling is super important. And don't overthink it, right? All you need to do really is, like you said, think about the keywords, but then just summarize the page. Like, what is the value that this or, or the purpose of this page? And summarize that and give it to people in a succinct manner. That's all you need to do. It doesn't take. I mean, really, if you're if you're using generic stuff now, even if you spent an extra ten minutes per page, you know, and like you said, maybe you got five or ten pages. In an hour or two, you can be done, and you don't have to touch that again for a good while. You know, 
So just spend the time because it really, really, it really is important. What's next? Next up is when you have a booking engine that is not fully integrated into your site. So imagine that you are a consumer that has landed on this beautiful website that does not have pictures of toilets. And you search the homepage, you have looked at all the amenities, and the, the property looks fantastic. And you decide, okay, I'm going to go see what the prices are for this hotel. And they click on the button that says check rates and availability, and oh, everything goes south from there. Maybe you have a logo that matches your logo on the front end of the site, but everything else just looks completely different. And now the consumer just doesn't know what's going on. Um, and it just looks terrible. So we don't want to shock our consumers in a bad way like that. Uh, we really want the look and feel of the booking engine to match the look and feel of the front end of the site. Very, very important. And we don't want it to look like the back-end developer that developed your booking <laughs> yeah. engine was the one that did the design, right? Because th those are very different skill sets and typically it's gonna be very blocky font, the layout's not gonna be intuitive, the calls to action are going to be, you know, very bland. Uh, but yeah, there's no reason in 2016 your booking engine shouldn't fully integrate within your main website. Even the URL, you know, you shouldn't jump from URL to URL. It should be myhotel.com slash reservations. You know, you should have the exact same header and footer as the rest of your website. The fonts, the everything the well, you're, you're taking someone off you're, you're asking them to enter their credit card information but you're sending them to something that, that comparatively what they just looked at yeah. it was beautiful and then they go look at some junk you think they're going to want to put their credit card information to junk when they just looked at beauty no way yeah. and, and the customer hasn't yes we've sent the customer to the next stage of the booking process farther down in the conversion funnel but they have not said okay now i'm going into the booking engine i expect things to change it's another page to them they clicked on the word reservations they're not expecting something different from a consumer's perspective it's all one process you need to make sure that you're helping your customer understand that and yet taking them off to a blank white page with just your logo in it and Shady navigation, it's not helping your conversion. Right? It's look, not helping I mean, look at what the big guys do. What are, what are, <clears throat> what's Hilton do? What's Marriott do? Even the OTAs, what do they do? Everything's uniform the whole way through. Yeah. People are super comfortable booking with them. Yeah, you don't want people to who are, you're building trust, right? So they come to your website, you're building an affinity, you're building trust, you've got them, they're like, okay, I like this. This looks good. This room looks great. The amenities look good. good. Let me check the price. And then you go from this awesome hotel to the Resomatic 3000 junk booking engine. They're like, who do I want to give my credit card to? I don't want to give it to these people. I wanted to give it to the hotel and now you're asking me to give it to this robot. I don't want to do that. So you just got to make sure that there are so many options out there. You know, Guest Desk is our product and it integrates like we're talking about, but there's a lot of other products out there that do it. So if you have this antiquated booking engine that looks like a Frankenstein you know, monster of a booking engine, it's really time to evaluate, is there an upgrade path with your current vendor or do you need to start looking for a vendor that provides more integration within your website? Your conversion your, rate is gonna go up significantly. Your point of, it's 2016. Yes, years and years ago, there were technical reasons why this was not the case, but by the time someone gets to your booking engine, they may have already paid TripAdvisor 
to send traffic your way. You may have already paid Google to send traffic your way. They may have been to Expedia and all these other places. You've already invested a lot of money in this customer to send them to a pretty crappy looking booking engine. And I mean, sort of what you said before, it's 2016. Yeah. And, and if it's not mobile friendly, going back to the, fir- the first point, you're in double trouble. Yes. You know? All right, what's next? This actually ties in with what yeah, Pete just Pete said. was just about. saying, don't send people away. So we're talking about sending people away, but for reviews. So you spend a lot of money, either through SEO, email, PPC, whatever, to get people to your site. To send them away to leave a review is just dumb. Yeah, or or mm-hmm. social channels <coughs> yeah, as well, right? Yeah, or videos. We're talking Facebook, YouTube, all of those things. Don't send them away. Keep them on your site. You have them there. Everything that you can put on your social media can live on your website in a way. So make them leave the review with you. And it, you know, it, at the same time, it's creating some type of authority for you when other people view your site. Now they can read review rather than having to leave. Go to TripAdvisor, go to YouTube, go to Facebook. They can stay right there. Exactly. This is the one thing that I want to rant on the most because a lot of hotels are being told they need to have links to their social profiles all over their website. Their social team, if they're contracting someone or internally, are getting measured on the activity specifically on Facebook or Twitter or wherever it is. Those tools are means of driving people to your website to book. Your website is not designed to go feed the coffers of Facebook and Twitter and everybody else. If you have information that you want to share, embed that on the site first and use those social methods of driving people to it not the other way around you gotta stand up and fight against your social team in some cases to keep them focused on the prize of you know heads and beds as much as you can yeah i mean this is a funnel right we're trying to get people from point a to point z and we're trying to make sure they do it in a, in a linear fashion right mm-hmm. and sometimes there's little loops along the way but the, the worst thing you can do is get them distracted because you know what, if you come to the, if you get to a hotel website and the first thing you see is go check out our Facebook page, well, I, okay, I'll, I'll do that. They're telling me to do that. I'm going to click there. And then I see a post from my Aunt Beryl ranting about the millennials and how their work ethic sucks. Right? When, when I'm Aunt Beryl, when she starts drinking, she goes, <laughs> I mean, she's crazy. When is she not drinking? That's true. But. You know, you get my point, right? You're competing then against all the noise that's on these social channels. Same with YouTube. What happens at the end of a YouTube video? You're watching another YouTube video. <laughs> you know, it's another YouTube because you're going to show me something relevant to me because they're targeting me, right? And, and ultimate you know why rabbit hole. You, no, it, it's not that. You have now moved from the hotel's conversion funnel to YouTube's conversion funnel. YouTube's conversion funnel does not care about you booking a hotel room. Yep. They care about the ad revenue and you right. eventually getting to watch that cat video. Yeah. And you can accomplish the same thing. You can have a like button on your website so they don't have to leave if you want the like. right? Yeah. You can embed the YouTube video in your website and not show related videos at the end. So you can accomplish what you wanted to accomplish, which is showing people what's going on on your social channels or in your video channel without sending them somewhere else, right? But again, you need to be thinking about how do you push them through the funnel. And social proof is, is, is a useful tool. Knowing that a hotel has 50,000 fans on Facebook can help me 
gain the, the trust with the property. It can reassure me that I'm making a good decision, right? But I don't need to go to Facebook to do that. Your mm -hmm. website can tell me that there's 50,000 fans on Facebook. Maybe I'll go verify, maybe I won't. But don't just actively send people away. It's okay to have icons to these things in your footer, but don't hit them in the face front and center with, first thing you need to do is go check out mm -hmm. how fun we are on Facebook. It's, it's redundant, it doesn't make any sense. It hurts your conversion rate. We're not saying not use social. Obviously, it's an incredibly important part. We highly recommend you use platforms like YouTube to serve all your videos from because it gives you just you know added reach to get your customers. But when they're on your website, they are your customers. They're in your funnel. Don't let them get out to go to some other social media's funnel. Right. You, like you said, you paid a lot of money to get them there. That you know. Don't send them somewhere else. You've gotten that horse to the watering hole. All you need to do is get it to drink. Don't send it across the state to another watering hole now. That makes no sense. Mm -hmm. So just focus on the end game. Maybe you're not going to seal the deal that first time. Maybe you need to collect an email address or do something or get a social follower on your website. Just don't send them to someone else's platform that you don't control but has a lot of noise when you've already got them almost to the end of the funnel. Yeah, I mean, amen. What we're trying to do here is keep them in your funnel. And that kind of brings us to the next thing we want to rant about, which is conversion dead ends. Like you said, we've, we've paid a lot of money. You've gotten people to your site. You've probably paid a lot of money for content development and building out a great news and article system on your site. When they get there, don't let it be a conversion dead end. Have that news article have... A conversion point you know if you've enjoyed this article read another one more more appropriately if you've enjoyed reading the article about our beautiful accommodations here's accommodations that are for sale right now get them into the funnel regardless of where they are and you always want to follow that person into the website and take any random path you can if at any time you go in that path and you find that you get to the end of an article, the end of a page, the end of an amenities section, and you don't know what to do next, then you've failed, and you need to figure out what you can put there to make that person go deeper into that funnel. And if you want to know what that content is, check your analytics. Make sure you know where people are leaving your site, and that way you kind of have a better understanding of where to put that what's next type of content. If people are leaving and they're not booking with you, get something in front of their face that's going to make them stay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and consumers aren't just coming to the homepage. You know, that's a misnomer. Five years ago, sure, that was everyone came on in on the homepage. But now people are finding you through longer tail keywords in their landing on blog articles, on room pages, on amenity pages. So think about every page the same you do as your homepage. Every page is potentially an entry point. Well, yeah, Google's and an getting exit better. Point, right? Google's getting way better at sending people deeper into the site where it's most relevant. And right? you have longer tail keywords with voice searches and things like that, then people are talking into their phones and they're intending to hit an interior page. They exactly, so make sure every page is a landing page and the start of a funnel, right? So what's the next logical step? And, and maybe it's not one or one step, maybe it's a couple of, maybe it's an email sign up or a booking. But whatever you do, don't give them no options because their option is gonna be closing the website mm -hmm. or hitting the back button. And we had an episode a couple of weeks ago about um, converting after the conversion. Mm -hmm. And that really does tie into this. Make sure that every page is 
sending people through the conversion funnel to another conversion, no matter what they do. Yeah, I mean, we just kind of railed on, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all the other kind of social platforms a little bit with you sending people from the site to those platforms. But when people come from those platforms to your site, they're typically not coming into the homepage. They're coming into the article that was shared. They're coming into the video that your social team may have, you know, posted to Facebook. They're not coming into your homepage. So wherever they enter, Stuart, to your point, that is the start of that person's funnel. And also remember, you should have a booking widget, a search function on every page. Because again, every page is now potentially an entry page into your site. Do not let that visitor not be able to figure out how to search for a room. Yeah, Melissa, you need to be much more ranty on this one. This, yeah. is, this is your wheelhouse. Make I'm it easy. To get to learn. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so next up. This You're, might be my biggest rant, I'll be honest. Well, no, this is probably my biggest rant. So we get this a lot. When we're, we're starting the redesign process with a new client or, or an existing client, they often start trying to design their ideal website from their perspective, right? They design the website for what their taste is and what they want to see with the knowledge that they already have and the assumptions they've already made about their property. And they have a lot of inherent knowledge about the property that an average consumer doesn't. They have a taste that is unique to them. And oftentimes, you know, we deal with a lot of resort destinations and, and some of those may maybe have, you know, blue collar demographic is their target audience and they're certainly not blue demographic owners, right? They're, they're making millions of dollars a year in the hotel industry. So they want to design this sophisticated, high-end, beautiful website that doesn't resonate in any way with their target audience, right? It, it, it appeals to them and their heritage and their background, their socioeconomic standing, but they're not even giving a second thought to the consumer, which is who you're building the website for. You're not building it for your site. You're building it to convert, to put heads in beds. And the people you're trying to convert and the heads you're trying to put in the beds are the people that you should be thinking about front and center when you start a redesign. And why people don't engage those people, why you don't do the research up front to determine what they like and what they don't like, it blows my mind. So many people just say, I like this, I don't like this, let's build it that way. It makes no sense. Engage your consumer. You have a social following, you have an email database, poll these people, ask them, have focus groups. You got people coming to your hotel every week. Show them what you're thinking about design-wise and ask them. And we, we've got really good case studies on this. We've had clients that we were trying to sell them on a specific design and we showed them two or three options and they really like one and we're like, well, that's probably not the way we would go. We'd recommend this. And then finally, we convinced them to let us show it to their guests or potential guests. And overwhelmingly, the guest chose a different design than the hotel owner because they're different types of people with different and ideals. The tools to do this are more prevalent now than ever. It's so easy to pick any of the testing platforms, if it's usertesting.com or whatever it might be, to give them a bunch of different options and say, which one do you like best? You, you can find out real quick what the customer wants. And, you know, I mean, Melissa, I know you have a lot of thoughts on that, but testing reveals your opinion, not what's in the back of your mind. Well, we run into this type of thing with design of websites <clears throat> as well. I mean, it's for, for us, you know, our designers have certain things that they like. Well, as a marketing person, we have to coach them to say, this is the demographic focus more on this type of design. 
you know, that, that type of stuff happens all the time. At the end of the day, I mean, I, you everyone wants a beautiful website, right? But at the end of the day, you want a website that's going to make you the most money. It's going to get the most conversions. So whether you like it or not really doesn't matter if it's getting the best conversion rate, right? So testing, um, polling people, having focus groups, whether you're using user testing or whatever, it doesn't matter, but just engage people. And the other benefit of that is now people feel ownership in it. Right? You can make it an event. You know, how many people just, they launch a new website and they put it out there in nothing, right? It's, it's crickets. But what if you turn it around and you make your redesign an event, just like you would if you were renovating your property? Hey, here are all the benefits of our new website. Here's how it makes you com- more, it better for you as a consumer, how com- more convenient it is, how we've now got whatever new features it is. Engage people in the process and they feel ownership, and then when you launch that new website, guess what, you're back top of mind in that consumer psyche, so they may choose you again. You might even inspire a trip from them. So don't just build it in isolation in a box, just make sure your guests are at the front of your mind as you're designing the website. Melissa, you're really quiet on this one, and I'm shocked. What can I say? You're all right. (laughs) You summed it up perfectly. All right, good. So what's next? What's next is uh, when you turn your website into a NASCAR car. <laughs> Basically, when you junk up your website with so much stuff that it just becomes a cluttered mess and your consumer doesn't know what to do at this point because they're overwhelmed with stuff that they can't make heads or tails out of. So imagine you've launched your brand new website, again, with no toilets. And uh, it looks beautiful, but inevitably new things you want to add to the site, such as, oh, we just got this AAA accreditation, or we just got a TripAdvisor um, certification of some kind. And slowly but surely, you've got one sticker, then another sticker, then another sticker on your homepage, and now your whole homepage looks like a NASCAR car. But Melissa, but Melissa... The American Motor Coach Association gave me this award. I think that should be a main promo panel that I stick up everywhere. Or, or John in Food and Beverage really wants to tell people about this new menu that we have yeah. for groups. So surely that deserves front prime real estate on the homepage, even though less than 2% of my business is coming from groups. Yeah. So first, let's remember that your homepage isn't seen by everyone, which we've already said. So that's issue number one. So even if you do want to junk it all up, not everybody's going to see it anyway. You really need to be critical about where that information is hosted, where it makes the most sense to be seen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you've got a best rate guarantee, you know what? Maybe while your booking engine is loading, that should be a message that says, looking for your best rate, we've got the best rate guarantee, blah, 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 blah. It, it, there's just there's a right place and time for those messages. It doesn't yeah. need to be just all over your homepage. Agreed, 100%. And it's easy to do. We see it all the time where people, okay, where do I, where do I need to put this? This is new. I need to tell people. I'm going to slap it on the homepage. What we've learned from thousands and thousands of tests is less is more right get the clutter out of the way give people the information they need at the time they need it and you're going to push them through that funnel to conversion a lot more effectively the if, if you've never done an a b test before one of the best first tests you can do is an inclusion exclusion test so look simple. at look at your home page figure out what's really mission critical what is the what are the things that people really need to know 
What are the stuff that's superfluous? Let's take that out and do a test with it and without it and see what happens. Mm -hmm. In nine out of 10, when you take things off of your homepage and off of your lower level pages that really only matters to a very small percentage of your consumers, guess what? The, the majority of consumers that don't care about that stuff, they convert better and you make more money. And we've seen this countless times where it's, hey, this has worked in the past, but we want to try this too, but we want to try this too, but we want to try this too, and they just keep slapping things on. Really, testing is the way to figure that out. You need to, you need to be able to say, we're going we're gonna to try this feature. Maybe you know removing another feature comes down the road, but those type of things need to be tested. Yeah, the NASCAR effect is going to happen. You know, it's it's inevitable because you add one thing and then two months later you add something else and it doesn't seem like you're doing a lot. You almost need to set a little calendar event every six months to look at your site and say, okay, what trouble have I gotten myself into and go through and start removing stuff. You don't ever see it when you're doing it, but man, if you step back and you look at, this is what the designer presented to me as the ideal site. This is what it's become after a year and a half of, you know, me putting stickers on it. And you'll be surprised what you actually like versus what you ended up with a year and a half down the road. Yeah. I mean, in an ideal world, you wouldn't put anything on your site or make any change without testing it. Mm -hmm. Right? If, if you think it's a good idea to add it, test it. See if it's a good idea. It's 2016. It is 2016. We're going to be in trouble next year. Yeah. It's not going to be 2016 anymore. And in 2017, you say it's testing. 2017. Yeah. I, you can say that any year. <laughs> That's true. What if this is 1984 if I'd been saying, this is 1984, you better be testing. Probably not because people didn't really have mm -hmm. websites. <laughs> All right. So the last thing, I'm going to rant about this one as well, is the contract. And the reason this bugs me is because I deal with a, a lot of the new business here at Fuel, right? I, I get the front line. I'm dealing with... You know, a, a client is unhappy with their existing vendor and they're looking to change, right? So I, I have that initial conversation. And part of that conversation is, well, what contractually do you get to keep, right? So this number 10 is basically not knowing what you own related to your website. So a lot of vendors out there will have a situation where you contract them for a website, they build you the website, it's great, Maybe it didn't live up to expectations. They promised you a 25% increase in conversion rate, something like that. And you find out, well, you know what? This, it's fine, but it's not what I want. I want to go in a different direction. So I'm going to go find a new vendor to host my website and to do my marketing. And then you say, hey, Mr. Vendor, can I have my website, please? And they say, well, no, actually you can't because we have a proprietary content management system and you actually don't own your website. You own the look and feel of it, we can export a static version of it, but the content management system upon which it's built, you don't own. You license that from us, so you're basically out of luck and you need to go to your new vendor and they're gonna have to recreate your existing website, you're gonna have to spend a bunch more money and essentially you wasted your money with us in the first place. So that's a situation a lot of people get into. We've also run into situations where the vendor that registered the URL for a new property actually owns the URL. The hotel itself doesn't. So the number 10 mistake we see is people not reading their contract. Make sure you understand when you hire someone to build you a website, what do you own? And really, 
Again, this is 2016. There is no reason you should not own every line of code, front end mm -hmm. and back end, for your website. There are so many open source free platforms out there or very low cost platforms out there upon which your website can be built that you can own and transfer and host any way you want without being tied to a vendor. If you're getting tied to a two or three year contract and at the end of that contract that vendor won't let you out of it and won't give you the files, you're selecting the wrong vendor. So ask the question up front when you're designing a website, what do I own and what do you own? Yeah, understand what CMS content management system that you're being built on. It's very important. Um, understand, make sure it's explicitly stated what you're going to own on your way out if you decide to leave. Those things are infinitely important. Also, you know, even to imagery, make sure you own your photos, those type of things as well. Mm -hmm. Your social accounts, your yes. analytics accounts, your AdWords account, right? They're all these things. We've, we've had that before. When you have to create a new AdWords account, you're starting from zero. You don't have any history your cost per click is going to be higher. So if your agency owns your AdWords account and you can't transfer that to your own ownership, you're screwed. It's basically costing you extra money when you decide to leave that vendor. So anything to add to that, Pete? Well, I mean, I would just say that, you know, in the, the honeymoon phase of, you know, selecting an agency or selecting a vendor, it's hard to say, okay, well, you know, when, if we fire you, do I own this? But that's the time to do it. That's the time to say, okay, let's make sure we're all clear that, you know, the hard work that I'm putting in, the hard work that you're putting in that I'm paying you for is benefiting me and I'm the true beneficiary. Get that laid out. It's better to have that up front and understand than to figure that out when you go to move to a different vendor and then you find out that you're in a really tough spot because you have 30 days to do something that may have taken you initially six months to build. So you get to pay attention to that and you know, no better time when you're negotiating with an agency is to do that before you have the contract. Just make sure it's thoroughly explained because I'm sure there are shady, shady tactics out there to kind of hide these things for people who are doing it that way. Mm -hmm. um, we don't, but you know that's neither here nor there. I just think you should know exactly what you're able to own or when you decide to break the contract. Yeah, and if you don't own it all, you probably need a different vendor. Like there's there's really no reason for you to build a website on a proprietary CMS in 2016. There's just really not. Mm -hmm. There are so many good open source platforms out there. So if you're the question you should ask every vendor as you're getting into negotiation is tell me about your CMS. Is it proprietary or is it open source? Is it something that I can move to another host if I so choose at any point in the future? If they say it's proprietary or no, you cannot move that to another host, honestly, you should probably say, thanks very much for your time, but I'm going to go in a different direction. Yeah. I need and to... ask why. Yeah. I mean, there, there may be a compelling reason. I haven't heard it, but you know, there, there may be a reason They'll why. probably spin a reason, but <laughs> is there really, you know, other than it, that's the platform that they've always used mm -hmm. and they don't know anything different, there's not really a compelling reason. Yeah. So that's it. That's our 10 or top 10 uh, mistakes that people make with their websites. So I think it was, you know, again, it's not exhaustive. We'd love to hear what your ideas are and things, mistakes that you see. So hit us up on Twitter at Fuel Travel or you can get the show notes and leave a comment at fueltravel.com slash podcast and click on episode 30. And where can they find you guys on the web, Pete? They can find me at P. DeMeo on Twitter, P-D-I-M-A-I-O. 
And they can also find me at the Internet Summit if they're going to be in Raleigh in two weeks. You know, we'll be there. Uh, we already promised that we're giving out playing cards if they know that we're on the podcast. I need to make sure you take those with you. Yeah. How are they going to identify you? Are they just going to go up to everyone at the summit and say, are you Pete DeMeo or Misha Bikikio? I think they should. They absolutely should. Yeah, just good. go around. So, no, you can uh, you know, hit me up on Twitter to, to let me know that you're there and we'll find each other and hook you up with some playing cards. All right. Nice. <laughs> Phil, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at pforiska. That's P-F-O-R-I-S-K-A. And Melissa? I am on Twitter at M-A-Kavanagh, M-A-K-A-V-A-N-A-G-H. And you can find me at Stuart Butler, S-T-U-A-R-T-B-U-T-L-E-R. You can find us collectively at Fuel Travel. Again, you can get the notes to this podcast at fueltravel.com slash podcast. Click on episode 30. And please, again, we tell this every week. We would love to get reviews from you on whatever platform you leave. Uh, you use, preferably on iTunes. That is where it really helps other people find us. So if you feel so inclined and you're liking what you hear, please leave a review. Or leave a comment or just let hit us up on Twitter and tell us what's going on. So until next time, you have been listening to the Fuel Hotel Marketing Podcast. Pete, hey, what does the modem sound like? <laughs> you sound like a donkey R2D2. <laughs>